May it please the court. My name is Jonathan Moeller, and I am an assistant attorney general with the Minnesota Attorney General's Office, and I represent the Minnesota Department of Labor and Industry. The department asked this court to hold the Baywood's alleged split day plan violates the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act, and to make it clear that agencies can make case-by-case -case decisions in contested case proceedings, even where they are applying laws to issues of, of first impression. Mr. Muller, how does an employer know um, before this case uh, that a split day plan, um, in fact, violates uh, state law? What regulation, rule, or statute clearly prohibits it such that they should know that they're exposed to $500,000 in back pay and, and a $500,000 penalty? Well, Your Honor, the plain language of the statute does not allow this type of plan. Um, this case is fundamentally about what overtime is under the Minnesota Act. Uh, it's DLI's position that overtime is established by the plain language of uh, sub subdivision one of uh, Minnesota statute section 177.25. Uh, 177.25 itself says that an employer has to pay overtime for hours in excess of 48 hours. Baywood, on the other hand, starts paying overtime after five and a half hours. Five and a half is not in excess of 48. And just because Baywood labels a payment overtime doesn't mean that it qualifies as overtime under the statute. Now, the plain language statute prohibits making overtime payments before uh, 48 hours? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Where does it say that? Well, it says that uh, an employer must pay overtime for hours worked in excess of 48. And when an, when an employer is uh, making payments before 48 hours, those simply Yeah, I, I understand they must do that, but but there's, I don't see any language there that says that they, um, I mean, presumably this, this, is, this is a benefit to the employee, at least arguably, um, but they can't do that because of a prohibition over 48 hours. I don't, I don't see that. I don't see the link. Well, Your Honor, if an employer can designate any hour of the work week as overtime, then it could, uh, for example, say, okay, your uh, regular rate is the minimum wage, but I'm always going to pay you overtime. And that, in, in effect, results in an employee never getting overtime because they're never being paid for an excessive work week. But alternatively here, if you assume that the eight hours that they start out with is the regular rate, they're actually paying them more overtime than they'd be required to pay because they're only paying 27 hours out of the 80 right, at the regular rate, and then they're paying many more than the 40, to 40 hours at, at overtime. Well, Baywood claims that it was paying overtime after five and a half hours, not after eight hours. That's what I'm saying. So they're actually paying more overtime. Well, um, I didn't say eight hours, I said eight dollars. Eight dollars, oh, I, uh, I understand. Um, <laughs> um, well, if you look, uh, uh, daily overtime was not a concept that was foreign to the legislature when it uh, enacted the statute. Um, subdivision 2 of section 177.25 actually references uh, daily overtime payments. And daily overtime is only uh, allowed for a healthcare facilities operator under certain cir circumstances. And um, those are that they agree with their employee that there's this two-week alternate period where the employees are being paid overtime after eight hours and uh, overtime after 80 hours. And Baywood's also operating within an exception. Um, subdivision 11 of section 177.23 um, says that Baywood can pay its uh, companionship services employees differently and that it's exempt from paying um, eight hours each day of a 24-hour shift uh, of both minimum wage and overtime. And that only applies to uh, the type of employees that are at issue in this case. And there's no reference to daily overtime there. And 
the Minnesota laws of uh, statutory, statutory construction say that um, when you have uh, a provision included as an exception to a statute, that provision is necessarily excluded from the rest of the statute. So you have this option to pay daily overtime as an exception to uh, subdivision two that's available to healthcare facilities operators, and that's not available to uh, other employers. And the uh, US Supreme Court case, uh, Walling v. Helmerk and Payne, is instructive here as to why this type of uh, wage payment scheme violates the act. Um, the planet issue in Helmerk and Payne dealt with a split day plan that arbitrarily divided a work day between uh, four to five hours, depending on the length of, of the day, and then um, four to seven overtime hours. And the rate was calculated to ensure that the employer uh, had certainty as to how much it was paying an employee unless the employee worked uh, over 80 hours in a week. And the U.S. Supreme Court held that this type of plan satisfied neither the purpose or the mechanics of the FLSA's overtime requirement because, uh, per the court, overtime premiums serve two purposes. They reward employees for excessive work weeks, and they uh, provide incentives for employers to uh, spread employment uh, to multiple individuals. For example, an employer who's... Uh, working in an employee for, or has 80, hour of, 80 hours of work is incentivized to hire two employees for 40 hours as opposed to uh, make the one employee work 80 hours. And counsel, counsel, if I may, just sort of in that vein, I, I want you to continue it with Walling, but I just want to make sure I'm understanding, at least from the department's perspective, what the problem is. It seems to me that the problem from your perspective is that once an employee gets over that 49 hours, so at day four, for instance, so day one is, you know, the first day is one to 16, but so if you follow that through, once you get over 48 hours, is the problem that Baywood is still paying the lower rate? after that point. So they're not, they're not compensating the employee overtime over the 48 because they always start out in those first few hours at the five and a half. Is, is that the problem? Uh, correct, Your Honor. The, the issue is that um, Baywood's payment plan divorces overtime compensation from the amount of hours an employee actually works. So these employees are being paid the same for the 80th, 90th, 100th uh, hours they work in a week as they are for hours 1 through 48, and that's, that violates the act. Okay. <clears throat> um, Baywood hasn't made any effort to explain why it has this arbitrary 5 and a half, 10 and a half uh, Split And the Supreme Court explained in Helmerich and Payne that um, overtime splits based on mathematical manipulations as opposed to real considerations of a, of a work week uh, violate the act. And it held that a very similar plan uh, was so obviously inconsistent with the statutory purpose that it couldn't lay claim to legality. And um, I talked a little bit about what the Supreme Court uh, had uh, held was the, the purpose of the federal overtime law, and uh, Section 177.22 has a very similar purpose for uh, Minnesota's minimum wage and overtime laws. Section 177.22 explains that the general purpose of the Minnesota Act is to safeguard minimum wage and overtime protections uh, and to sustain purchasing power and increase employment opportunities by Spreading, spreading that work around. So instead of employing uh, one person for uh, 112 hours in a week, because they have those incentives uh, to pay overtime to spread that employment to multiple employees. Counsel, if, if I may, um, it sounds like your position is 
we should decide this case on just a plain reading, plain language reading of the statute. Correct, Your Honor. And that if we decide, and if we decide that the statute prohibits these split day plans, we don't need to go any further in terms of our analysis. Is that correct? Uh, that's that's correct, Your Honor. Um, the department would ask that you do visit the Court of Appeals uh, rulemaking decision because well, that was clearly incorrect. But uh, we believe that the uh, the plain language of of Section 177.25 prohibits this type of plan. Okay. Well, you're you're headed where where I was headed. I mean, I'm trying to figure out whether or not we have to address. Um, the the implementing regulation, Minnesota Rule 5200.0140, because it looks to me if we get to that regulation, and this goes a little bit to Justice Anderson's question, it doesn't seem to me that there's anything in that rule that would tell an employer that split day plans are prohibited. I mean, you could read it that way, because it, it I mean, but it never really defines overtime, and you get into this whole analysis of what's a regular rate and all of that. So am I correct about that? Because it seems like you seem to concede that the rule doesn't specifically put employers on notice. No, I'm not, uh, I'm not conceding that at all. And our okay. position is that the plain language of the statute uh, prohibits over time, and the rule implements the statute. So the rule is implementing uh, implementing section 177.25. You have rule 5200.0130 that says the regular rate is uh, the number of hours, or the amount paid divide by, divided by the number of hours worked. Uh, 5200.0140 um, lays out certain things that an employer can deduct from the amount paid when determining the regular rate. And one of those things is uh, overtime wages, another is holiday, uh, extra wages paid for holiday work or, um, or weekend work, um, but it still has to be overtime wages and isn't just based that, on isn't that what the real dispute here is that Baywood wants to as I understand it they want to be able to deduct the overtime that they claim they're paying uh, before the 48 hours but just because is that, I mean, is that that's a question is that correct that's what they want to do but just because they label uh, hours worked as overtime doesn't mean that those are those are overtime hours under the statute Baywood calling those hours overtime doesn't make them overtime hours. I'm just trying to get clear on, on, the, on the problem, but that's, that's right. their claim, is that we ought to be able to deduct the overtime even on the, the, hours, the hours before 48. And the department's claim is that no, because of the way the statute is worded, you don't get to start even, you don't pay overtime. It's not overtime until you get past the 48th hour. Correct. And the reason why you have the deduction for overtime is so that once an employee has uh, worked more than 48 hours and uh, an employer is paying them more, that the employer isn't being uh, penalized by having the regular rate be increased. Um, but the fact that... Uh, I want to go back to, because I and maybe you answered this, and I'm just slow on the uptake here. So Justice Hudson asked whether or not the rule was essential to... Um, the outcome of the case, and I think you said yes, but I'm not sure I understand why. No, I said the rule is not essential to the outcome of the case because overtime is defined by the statute as opposed to the rule. Okay, so so you asked us to visit the rule anyway, but if we decided on the plain language as you've requested, um, then the analysis stops right there. We don't need to go any further. Right. All right, thank you. Um, even if you think the statute is ambiguous, though. Uh, can, I, can I just follow up one more point on that? You do need to go to the rule, though, to define what regular rate means. The statute uh, uses the language regular rate. That's not defined in the statute. So you need to go to the rule to define yes, what Yes, Your Honor, you means. go to the rule to, uh, to see what, what the regular rate is. And the regular so rate... So you do need the rule. You just... Um, Don't you just need the rule if you want to figure out what the overtime rate is? But your point is, in excess of 48 hours, 
is clear, and that's the end of the story. Right. You need the rule to figure out what the regular rate is, not to figure out when overtime needs to be paid under the statute. So you need the regular rule to figure out what the amount of the damages are or the penalty? Uh... Uh, correct, Your Honor. You need the rule to figure out what the amount of the penalty is. That's not in dispute in the case. The, the dispute in the case is whether Baywood's plan violates the act. So, counsel, what's the regular rate in this case? The regular, the regular rate is what's laid out in their payroll records, which is 1031 or 1067, depending on the employee. And we need the rule to de decide that, that it's laid out in their payroll records? Say again? We need the rule defining regular rate to decide that that is the regular rate laid out in their payroll records? <laughs> uh, no, you don't really need the rule for that so we don't either. need the rule. Yeah, you, you don't really need the rule. <laughs> well, except that you could also, I mean, I think Bay would argue the regular rate's $8. But there's no, there's no evidence for that. There's that's how they pay people, not according to their payroll records. Well, um, according to what they tell their employees. So, and in fact, what they really tell their employees, we're going to pay $170 a day when they're advertising their job, right? And you could get there on a whole kind of all kinds of different ways, mathematically. Uh, correct. One of uh, the fallacy of their summary judgment argument is that. Um, their affidavits, the affidavits they provided created a, a genuine issue of material fact, which isn't true. The payroll, um, the affidavits talk about what their employees understood that they were paid as opposed to what they actually, what the records actually show. And simple math, analyzing the records and using simple math shows that Baywood didn't actually pay in this split day, uh, split day plan. Um, but uh, getting back to... Wait, the records show they didn't actually pay the split day plan? Correct. Even uh, though that's what they told their employees that they were doing. And the numbers add up to the same thing. The, the numbers don't add up to what, uh, to what they told... Uh, the numbers don't add up to um, what they would had they been paying on the split day plan. And we... Uh, we run through that uh, with numerous examples in our brief. Uh, for example, um, there are instances where their em uh, employees didn't work uh, in multiples of 16, so they either cut short uh, a shift or worked a little bit extra in a shift. And if Baywood had actually been paying this $8-$12 split plan, then these irregular shifts would have changed what uh, that employee's uh, rate was for that pay period, and it didn't. Every single time that happened, it remained the same because Baywood paid a set hourly rate that didn't change. Right, it, it, it remained uh, 1031 or 1067. And um, we outlined a few of those examples in our brief. Um, getting, getting back to uh, the rulemaking uh, issue, um, if, if section 177.25 is ambiguous with regard to a split day plan, the department doesn't think it is, to be clear, uh, but if this court held that it's ambiguous with regard to whether a split day plan is permissible, then the court should apply the canons of statutory construction and analyze the purpose of the statute and what the legislative intent was when uh, putting that statute into place. And the Minnesota Act is a remedial statute. It's meant to protect workers, to make sure that they're paid the wages that they're owed. Baywood's plan um, violates section 177.25 because it allows Baywood to pay its employees the same uh, the same amount for each 16-hour shift, no matter how much they work. They're, they're paid the same for um, hours 112 as hours 1 through 16. <clears throat> and the court can look to similar laws uh, to determine that Baywood, uh, Baywood's plan violates the act. It can look to other states. It can look to the Helmerk and Payne decision. Uh, it can look to the fact that... Um, 
the federal act re required this amendment by Congress in order for uh, employers to pay um, on, a split, on a daily overtime. Uh, and that makes sense. Uh, in the, under the federal act, um, a regular workday in a regular five-day, 40-hour week is uh, an eight-hour day. And the, the uh, Congress decided that employees uh, could be paid overtime after eight hours. But that required an amendment by Congress in order to make those daily, uh, those daily uh, overtime premiums uh, deductible from the regular rate. <clears throat> the U.S. Department of Labor viewed this type of plan as such a threat to the act that it um, instituted a regulation that lab labeled split day plans as a device designed to evade overtime requirements. And just from a, from a fundamental uh, standpoint, applying a statute to uh, to a situation in a contested case proceeding is something that is routinely done by agencies. Um, <clears throat> this court has held numerous times, in fact, that uh, when a statutory provision or a rule is ambiguous, that's the only time you ever defer to, uh, to an agency's interpretation of a rule. And Counsel, on that point, you're getting into this area. I think Baywood's uh, principal claim here is that uh, the department's enforcement action is really unpromulgated rulemaking. Right. And you're, you're saying to us that, well, it's really just a part of the department's uh, interpretation of the statute, and, um, and, and that's their obligation to do that. What, what's the best case that you can cite to us? Because it looks like the, the, the field is pretty thin, but what's the best case that you can cite to us that allows the department to, um, uh, to take, a, take a statute and, and enforce that on a case-by-case -case basis? Well, uh, Bunge Corp, the Commissioner of Revenue, uh, lays out that agencies can uh, formulate policy on a case-by-case -case basis through uh, contested case proceedings. Um, and it, it says that is, uh, that decision is at the discretion of the agency. Um, so that would be the most, uh, the most on point case for you there. Help me, I might have my cases wrong, but in that case, is that the one where though it was conceded that the department had that authority? That, that really wasn't challenged, or am, am I thinking of a different case? Uh, no, that. Um, I mean, I can go back and look if you don't know. So, in that case, uh, <clears throat> the court said that uh, the parties conceded that they uh, that the commissioner could uh, engage in um, case by case uh, or um, could institute contested cases on a case-by-case on a case basis, uh, but the, uh, the party bringing the case to uh, the court's attention argued that um, in this case it was, uh, it amounted to unpromulgated rulemaking. And the department, ex or the court explained that um, the case constituted a determination based on facts as applied to a specific parties, which is what we had here. We had, uh, Baywood, who's not subject to the federal act, uh, we had them claim that they paid employees in a certain way, and the commissioner applied the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards, Standards Act to that alleged payment scheme and said it violates the act. If you have no further questions, I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Well, I do, I do have one more question, if I could. Um, the, um, let's assume you're right on reading the statute that the overtime has to kick in at hour 49. Um, I've been kind of a vigilant guardian of Minnesota's summary judgment standard. And in this case, it looks to me like you're right. Well, Mr. Douglas will probably educate me that the business records show, um, show something. 
But then you've got the affidavit from the, the president of the company and four workers saying essentially that the regular rate was $8 an hour. And they don't use the term regular rate. The president uses the term rate. The employees call it straight time. <laughs> um, does that create a disputed issue of material fact? Uh, no, Your Honor, and that's because uh, this court addressed um, this type of issue in DLHV Russ, where you explained that if a reasonable fact finder uh, could only find for one party, then the summary judgment standard, uh, summary judgment is appropriate. So it doesn't create a genuine issue. Right, it doesn't create a genuine issue just because they, uh, just because an affidavit claims that two plus two is five doesn't make that, doesn't make that right. Okay, thank you. Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Douglas. Good morning, Madam Chief Justice. May it please the court, counsel. Bruce Douglas here for uh, Minnesota Living Assistance, Baywood. Also my colleague Brian Moan is with me and my colleague uh, Andrew Tannock is here with us today. Um, I am going to, <coughs> excuse me, hopefully use this opportunity to respond to the arguments made by the department. And I think the central issue before us today for today's math lesson is how to compute the regular rate of pay under the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act when an employer uh, pays additional monies, whether it be for daily overtime or uh, on a split day plan and whether those things are permissible under the statute. Let me begin by saying that our task here today is to read the statute and the regulation and they are integral to one another. I can see from the argument this morning by counsel for the commissioner that the department would like to run away as fast and far as it can from its own regulation, but that is not possible, and here's why. The Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act, like the federal statute that it has a relationship to, does not define the term regular rate of pay. One might ask the question, why didn't Congress define the regular rate of pay? Who knows? Why didn't the Minnesota legislature some 40 years later, 35 years later when it enacted for the first time the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, which applied to general industry, why didn't it seek to define the term regular rate of pay? Don't know. What the legislature did though is give the authority to the commissioner in section 177.28 to make rules and regulations. And that statute lists about eight or nine or 10 specific areas in which the commissioner was to make regulations. And it did make regulations in some of those areas. But the key part of 177.28 is that the Minnesota legislature said the rules promulgated by the commissioner must follow the procedures of the Minnesota Administrative Procedure Act. The department consistently over the years has had its cake and has tried to eat it too when it comes to enforcing the state law <clears throat> because there are differences, significant differences between the federal statute and the state statute. And this court has been mindful of those differences, particularly in the Milner case, Milner versus Farmers Insurance Exchange, recognizing those differences and declining to employ. So is this rule an unpromulgated rule? And if not, why not? It's or an if unpromulgated it is, why is it? Why is it? Because the enabling statute for this agency does not give it the power to engage in what we call rulemaking by adjudication. Now, I'd like to make that a distinction. And here now, but you're claiming that that rule is not properly promulgated according to the well, EPA, and if not, I guess that's why, let's start there. Let's why, start with why the rule. Isn't, why okay. isn't that rule properly promulgated? Why was the Court of Appeals right on that point, which I assume you're going to argue yes. they are? Yes. Okay, so with respect to 5200-0140, excuse me, 0140, which is the 
exclusions from the definition of the regular rate of pay. There are two regulations that go together, 5200-0130, which defines the regular rate of pay, 5200-0140, which carves out from the calculation of the regular rate of pay certain types of additional payments. That's been in the, that's a federal concept for a long, long time, and it's the same thing here. The issue is that the Department of Labor in its entire history has never said anything about what that rule means. As to whether or not that rule was officially or properly promulgated, I can't tell you. We don't know where, where that rule really came from. All I can tell you is that it was somewhere in a handbook prior to 1982, and when the legislature created the Minnesota rules and told all the agencies to turn their rules in for publication, this rule existed in, in nearly its identical form. So we, we're not saying 5200-0140 wasn't properly promulgated. I can't make that argument to you. What I'm saying, <clears throat> what we believe the Court of Appeals got it exactly right, is what the department is trying to do is rewrite that rule in the context of this case and say for the very first time two things. And it's important to understand what they're saying. They're saying there's no such thing as daily overtime allowed in, under the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act that can be creditable to the weekly overtime. And they're saying for the very first time in history, no, split day plans are not allowed under Minnesota law. And that's an important thing because the department always takes the view when it's helpful to themselves that it doesn't need to follow the federal statute. And when they like something in the federal statute, then they run to it. Their case is based entirely on their reading of a Supreme Court decision from early on interpreting the original Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. Council, that's a little bit of an overstatement. I mean, I think their case is based on the exact language of Minnesota Section 177.25, the in excess of 48 hours. And then you look at the other statutes that give the department the authority to enforce these statutes. Your Honor, Justice Chudik, we're not claiming they don't have the authority to enforce the statute. We're not claiming they don't have the authority to issue compliance orders and then run through the procedure and the contested case proceeding and make those kinds of decisions applying law to fact. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is 177.25 subdivision 1, and this is a new argument that they're, they're making here really for the first time on appeal, doesn't define the regular rate. It says only that overtime has to be paid after 48 hours in a work week at time and one half the regular rate. Counsel, regular is your argument that, is your argument under the statute, I mean, your employees work longer than 48 hours. They do. Okay. So the statute then says they can't work more than 48 hours unless they get overtime. Yes. So do your employees who work more than 48 hours get overtime? Yes. Okay. They so do. then this dispute is about what overtime means? The dispute is about what is the regular rate because it's the regular rate that determines the overtime rate. I think, Council, that the, the department is saying you don't really. I agree with you on that. I agree that the that that, that that's how you determine the overtime is you got to figure out the the regular rate first because it's that rate that then you right. you multiply the one and a half times times. So I get that. But if I'm understanding the department, they're saying whatever that is, whatever that is, is irrelevant in, in, in large respect because the statute just simply says you have to pay overtime, however you calculate it, once you get over 48 hours. Okay. And so that, that's what I think you're hearing. Well, that's for me the, the, the sort of sticking point. Because isn't Hudson. that true? I mean, it seems to me there, that, that that's accurate, that, you know, because, my gosh, if you get into how you, what overtime means and, and how you apply that to the regular rate and, and start doing those calculations, it gets more difficult. Um, but if all you're doing and all that is required is to determine whether or not, based upon that first sentence in 177.25, Baywood is paying overtime, then it's... Not simple, but it's simpler. Justice Hudson, I, I do appreciate that. So perhaps let me, um, let me explain it this way. That simply isn't the way the wage and hour laws work. Um, 
the wage and hour laws due to the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act on the issues we're dealing with does two things. It sets a floor for a minimum wage and it sets a maximum hours threshold after which a premium should be paid at one and one half times the regular rate. The statute does not define the regular rate. The commissioner defined the regular rate and undoubtedly borrowed concepts of the regular rate from federal case law and from the federal statute. But it has always been the case under the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act and it has been the case in the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act that not everything that is paid to an employee in a work week goes into the calculation of the regular rate. Some things do, some things don't. For example, shift differential. If you're the night watchman and you get an extra 50 cents an hour for working the night shift instead of the day shift, that goes into the regular rate because that's what you customarily earn. Other types of premium pay, historically, both under federal law and state law, do not go into the regular rate. And it is the department that wrote the rule. There's no reason for the, to even have the rule if the department is going to rest on the argument that it made today. And what the department said in its rule, and it differs. Council, can you give an example of what would not go into the regular rate of pay? Certainly. I'll give you, okay, let's take daily overtime. Okay, let's take daily overtime. The state of Minnesota has contracts with AFSCME. Those contracts provide for the payment of daily overtime after the person's, let's say after eight hours or 10 hours, whatever they work. The reason the daily overtime premiums don't go into the regular rate is that they would compound the ultimate calculation of weekly overtime because the, neither the federal statute nor the state statute requires the payment of daily overtime. Now we've got a couple of states that do, California being one, but we are not one of them. Because those payments are extra, and they are done for particular reasons in particular industries, they do not go into the calculation of the regular rate. Under the federal statute, some things don't go into the regular rate and they're not creditable toward weekly overtime. Some things go into the regular rate and they're creditable toward weekly Council, overtime. Maybe it's, it just gets circular for me because yes. I, I think what the department is saying is that, well, your position, as I understand it, is that because you are paying overtime at some point before you get to 48 hours, your client ought to be able, your client fits within the exclusion and ought to be able to deduct that time from the regular rate calculation because doing yes. so clearly benefits your client because if that brings down the regular, you know, the, the bottom line for the regular rate, when you do the calculation, your client owes less, right? Yes, Your Honor. But that's and, because... and the department is saying <clears throat> you can't take that deduction. Mm -hmm. This is as much a question as, a, as anything. Mm -hmm. As I understand it, you can't take, your client can't take that deduction because of the way the statute is worded that says it, it, you, you don't get to take it until you get over the, the 48 hours. Is, is that... No. That's, that's, an that's an argument invented for today's case, Your Honor. That's an argument, it's a litigation posture of the department. There is never But isn't been... that the rule, though? No, Does, it's not. Isn't that what the statute, not the rule, isn't that what the statute says? The statute only says overtime must be paid after 48 hours. There's nothing in the statute that precludes an employer from paying overtime prior to. So, so are you arguing that the the word overtime pay in the regulation, which is, an, which is excluded, can be, when you pay that on a, in a particular day, then that is credited. Yes. Uh, so once you get to, f if you're working over 48 hours, you can count those 12 hour days, 12, hour, 12 dollar an hour hours as overtime. Yes. For purposes of any time over 48 hours. And in fact, right. here, you're even paying, once they hit 28 hours, Right. In an 80-hour week, you're paying them overtime in some right. sense from your perspective. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, That's the basis does, of yes. your argument. That so, doesn't, it, it, it does seem to fly. Then it, for me, it, it brings you back around to all the, the multiple examples that the administrative law judge and then, of course, the department picks it up in their, in their brief of it just kind of looks like funny math because at the end of the day, um, 
these people end up all making the same $10.63, no matter how you slice that onion. It, it, it looks like you're just moving pieces. Which kind of raises but, the question. But, then it, but could, it, it still comes out to 100 and, you know, it, yeah. it comes out the same. So and, and on building on that question, why yeah. do you use the split day method instead of some sure. other method? Okay. Let me begin this way. <clears throat> Let me take the questions in reverse order and try to pick this apart. Why do you use the split day plan? Split day plan sometimes is used to reward people for work that might be different during one part of the shift than the other part of the shift. There are some places, uh, for example, uh, in uh, uh, Longshoremen used to have split day plans. They would have uh, one rate of, of course, they're unionized for the most part, but they would have one rate of pay for early morning hours and one rate of pay that was kind of standing pay, you know, being there, and then one rate of pay when the ships came in and they actually had to do some work. In this particular case, Baywood, in order to remain competitive in the marketplace with its competitors, and Baywood provides very good wages, has people there for a very long period of time, and provides benefits, which many of its competitors don't, set up a system where they said, look, for the first, for the first five and a half hours, we're paying you one rate. For the, next five and a, for the next 10 and a half hours, we're paying you time and a half that rate. To your question, Justice Hudson, it's not funny math in the city. It, it may look like funny math, I admit, and the Helmer campaign case was funny math, and I'm, I'll, well, I'll come back to that in a moment. But this, what we're talking about here is not whether or not we think it's such a good idea or we like it. We're talking about a regulation that the department promulgated and what the department's regulation says. Payments which are not considered part of the employee's remuneration for purposes of calculating regular rate of pay include, subparagraph B, premium payments for overtime work or work on Saturdays, Sundays, holidays, or scheduled days off if the premium rate is at least one and one-half times the normal rate. And that's the weakness in the department's entire argument. <clears throat> the normal rate is not the regular rate. The normal rate is understood in wage and hour law as the contract rate, the rate of pay agreed upon between the employer and the employee. That is not inadvertent. That's not a typo in the regulation. The normal rate differs from the regular rate. And the, the department Counsel, can I stop you there just for, can I stop you just for I, clarification? Yes, maybe I'm, I didn't read the briefs carefully enough, but this is the first time, or maybe you can point me where in your brief you talk about the normal rate versus the regular rate, because I'm hearing you make a distinction between those two. I'll, I'll uh, find it as I'm, as I'm looking. The, um, <clears throat> excuse me, if I may, um, while I'm doing that, if I may uh, also mention something about the Helmer campaign case. One of the reasons, the council made an argument that uh, Congress had to amend the statute. That's true. There were a whole series of decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court from 1938 to about 1946, 47, with which Congress simply disagreed. Some of the decisions were continued. The reason the statute was amended in 1949 was to reject about a dozen or so decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. They're summarized, I think, in a footnote in an opinion by Justice Frankfurter in the uh, Aaron versus Bay Ridge case. But I'm, I'm, let me try to find the, here it is. Um, on page six of the brief, we distinguish between the no, uh, normal rate, uh, and there's footnote six at page six of the brief, which distinguishes that and makes the point that this is a different, uh, a different type of calculation. And the reason that these, there's a whole bunch of uh, items, A through G, in Rule 5200.0140 that are excluded from the calculation of regular rate because they are extras, they are additions to what the employee may customarily earn. To, to show you the inconsistency of this, you know, the department takes the position that, well, you, you know, you can't, have a, you can't have daily overtime. Well, if we can't have daily overtime, how do we address the tension between the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act, which sets the hourly maximum at 40, and the Minnesota statute, which persists in keeping the threshold at 48? 
Lots, most employers in the state of Minnesota are governed by the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act just by virtue of their dollar revenue. I think it's a $500,000 annual revenue threshold to be covered by that. The Minnesota statute historically has had a very narrow uh, application to small employers. Counsel, let me, uh, yes. let me ask you this question. Did uh, your client pay overtime for holidays? For holidays? Yes. No, I think they paid, they paid the same, uh, they paid the, pay the employees, I think, their same rate for a, for a paid holiday. Well, I've got um, findings of fact here that say that um, um, an employee named Sakala got overtime for holiday pay, for holiday work, and an employee named Wilson, and that there was a holiday rate. Is yeah. that, so your, your client was paying overtime when people worked on holidays? Oh, if they worked on the holiday? Yeah. Yeah, they got, yes. Okay, so yeah. they got overtime. Yeah. And was that overtime um, one, one and a half times a particular number? The, over, their, the overtime rate that the employer was using was one and a half times the normal rate or the contract rate. That's what they so were that'd using. So that would be one and a half times $8 an hour? Yeah, was it for some people it was eight or, yeah. Right. Well, that's not what the findings of facts say. They say that um, essentially the over, it was one and a half times what was the hourly rate of $165 to $170 an hour divided by, uh, by 16. So, the, so one employee was getting $15.47 an hour, which is one and a half times the regular rate of $10.31 listed on the um, earnings statement. Yeah, to, to how, your, how, do you, how do you explain that? Well, to, to your point, Your Honor, there was no trial here. There was very, the department There was, took, there was no what? There was no trial. The, these are issues of fact. This is why we say that the, the Court of Appeals got it right when they said there are issues of fact. These are points that do need to be explained. It must, and to your point about protecting uh, litigants on the summary judgment record, I'd like to point out to the court there is absolutely no zero testimonial evidence on the part of the uh, commissioner uh, in this record. We took the deposition of the commissioner's representative. They took zero. And the other thing the court ought to be aware of here is there, there isn't a, there's not even a complaint in the record. This case is being decided on a dispute between what do the documents say and what does the affidavit of Dorothy, uh, Dorothy Muffet and the other employees Would, would say. you agree that how overtime was calculated for a holiday would be highly probative as to what your client's regular rate was? Not necessarily, Your Honor, because overtime is not required. You don't have to calculate overtime. Oh, you mean if they work on the holiday? Yeah, yes, they, work, they be, work on a holiday. Yes, they're, getting, be, they're, getting over, they're getting full overtime for holiday yeah, that work. That would be relevant. Uh, <clears throat> if, <clears throat> excuse me. But there is no evidence in the record other than the cold document on that, and that's the other reason why in order to uh, really determine the issues here, you know, what did the employer use a split day plan? What rate of pay is appropriate? That's why. Is there anything in the record controverting that the regular hourly rate would not be whatever was paid by overtime discounted by a time and a half? I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand that. <clears throat> is there anything in the record where your where your client explains why they're paying so much more overtime on holidays than they are during non-holidays? No, I don't think that there's anything that specific in the record. Okay. I think we're looking and I, and at I think that question, counsel, goes to the argument that Mr. Moeller makes about, um, well, we should just we should ignore your affidavits and rely solely on the business records. And um, you know, this ties back to the question Justice Lillehog asked earlier about the summary judgment standard. Uh, I presume you don't agree with that, and I would be interested to hear your, your reasoning as to why we should reject Mr. Moeller's position on that point. And I think he points to, in his defense, I think he points to some cases where we talk about, you know, metaphysical arguments and things like that. I mean, um, why does your situation not fit into those cases? This is not merely a metaphysical doubt. This isn't, uh, as Mr. Moeller gave you the example, <coughs> excuse me, someone coming up with an affidavit and saying two and two is five. That's not what this is. Ms. Muffet's affidavit states specifically how they calculated the pay rate in these cases. The five, four or five employees affidavits state that they understood that, they knew that, that was discussed with them. There's nothing in the record to contradict that. 
what the department wants to do is rely on the paper record, and that's where I believe the ALJ got into difficulty. The council, why, why wouldn't you rely on the paper record, particularly when the paper record is your record? It's your client's record. I mean, it, it, it just strikes me as yeah. bordering on absurd to say that you can create a genuine issue of material fact by contradicting your own documents. It's not like those documents came from somewhere else. They came from you. They came from your client. Yes, ma'am. And if that can create a genuine issue of material fact, that's concerning to me. Well, Your Honor, we explained to the department all the way through the investigative process, we explained at the hearing, it's, it's in the record, that the reason, <coughs> excuse me, the printouts, and I acknowledge that this is not a good fact for us, the printouts do not accurately reflect the split day plan or the agreement. But there is nothing else but for the department to say, we're going to, we want to ignore your affidavits, your sworn statements, because we have these unsworn documents here. That's not the Keep way to Keep calling them the unsworn documents, but they come from you, that you, your client. They come yes. from your client. And they were explained. They were explained to the department. They were explained to the ALJ. And so that's why the case was inappropriate when the ALJ weighed that evidence and disregarded everything else. That's why it's appropriate for it to go back. I, I don't think you, that just, I don't think you ever explained why you use a split day plan here. And it, it goes to the department's argument a little bit about going back to the Supreme Court and the purpose sure. of these rules about protecting minimum wage. I don't think there's a minimum wage issue and now no one's claiming that here and then these other uh, full sure. employment kind of considerations. But you mentioned longshoremen and people standing around for certain periods yeah. of time. But for this industry, why do you use a split day plan? I think in the end of the day, there was an effort to come up with a plan to tell the employee how much are you gonna earn in a day. And the reason for that is that although Baywood has these long-term companions, these are, these are essentially babysitters for the adult and the infirm, to allow them to be able to compare that to what they would earn at other companies because some of them, it's kind of like, <coughs> excuse me, the companions, uh, it's kind of like gig assignments. They can work some days at some other company, some days for Baywood, and they can decide whether they want the assignment because it's too close to home or not, or too far from home, et cetera. So it was to allow them to understand, we're gonna pay you this much for this, this much for all the other hours, it comes out to this per day and you can compare that. And that's how the advertisements uh, compared it. So to be able to compare day to day with other employers, yeah. and because it's a 16 hour, because it's a 16 hour, so you're really trying to get to a number daily rate. In they were trying, I think, yeah, but they did it. But, you know, but you don't want a situation where yeah the daily rate is gonna be something for the first three days or four days, right? So, well, whatever the math is, and then different for the next two days. Right, because understand that the per, one of the reasons that employers- and I'm sorry, could, Chief, we're going over here, okay. Thank you, Your Honor. One of the reasons for daily overtime is precisely because the, none of the statutes provide for a guaranteed work week. So an employer can always adjust the work week of an hourly employee by saying, okay, you worked, 40 hours, uh, thank you so much for working 10 hours a day instead of eight for the last four days I'm giving you Friday off whether you like it or not. If we take Friday off, we're salaried people, we, you know, we get paid anyway. So it allows the employee to uh, capture that additional premium for whatever number of days the person works. Now in this case, some of the companions work six days, seven days a week and they live in the home of the client, that's what they do for a living. But what we're talking about here, and I will close, the, the point of what we're talking about is this, and the, by the way, the government admits that the statute does not define the term regular rate. They, they, they admit that. You, you, 177.25 subdivision one doesn't answer the question. The argument about the healthcare exception doesn't have anything to do with this case at all. The healthcare exception is not really so much a daily overtime thing. It is an exception from the single work week rule. Thank That's you. the purpose of the eight and 80. You have to look at 5200-0140 because the department was given the authority to make that rule. 
they made that rule and they said these are the things that do not go into the regular rate. And to answer uh, Justice Anderson's question and those of others, how would an employer know that daily overtime doesn't, uh, can't be excluded from the regular rate? And since the department has never said one word in 40 years about a split day plan, how would we know that? Thank either? you, counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Moeller, uh, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Start whenever. Um, section 177.27 uh, gives DLI, the, uh, the commissioner of DLI, the explicit authority to apply the Minnesota Act, including section 177.25 through contested, contested case proceedings. Um, Baywood has not ever really explained what it thinks uh, the rule that the commissioner has un improperly promulgated is. What the department did is it made a statutory interpretation argument to the administrative law judge in a contested case, which the administrative law judge agreed was the correct statutory interpretation argument. Our review of that would be de novo, right? Uh, correct, correct, Your Honor. And Come. so this comes back to the question that I asked you right at the beginning. Um, split day plans, daily overtime, et cetera, none of that is prohibited by the statute unless we buy your argument that it's just a function of you can't pay overtime until you get to 48 hours and then you have to pay overtime. That, that's your argument, isn't it? Uh, yes, Your Honor. The department's position is that the plain language of the statute does not allow daily overtime and that if the statute is ambiguous, then the purpose of the statute, the, the legislative intent, the way uh, other uh, wage protection acts have been interpreted by courts should be taken into account by so this counsel, court. So, on the plain language piece, as I understand it, your argument is hour 49 needs to be time and a half, hour 50 time and a half, 51 and so on. Correct, so Your Honor. Let's, let's assume that the regular rate is, as Mr. Douglas's client asserts, $8 an hour. That would mean then that hours 49, 50, 51, and so on would have to be at $12 an hour, right? Correct. And what does the record tell us as to whether hours 49, 50, 51, and so on were paid at $12 an hour? Well, Your Honor, what the records show is that it doesn't matter how many hours these employees worked, they were always paid 1031 or 1063. So they weren't getting $12 an hour for hours 49, 50, and 51? Correct, Your Honor. Okay. Now, he's got a theory, though, that, that his client is entitled to a credit for, for $12 an hour having been paid in, in the first 40 hours of work, at times during the first 40 hours of work. What's your response to the credit argument? Uh, your Honor, section um, or rule. No, I'm just talking about the plain language of the act. Well, the plain the plain language of the act doesn't talk about any credits. The credits uh, that employers are entitled to comes from Minnesota Rule uh, 5200.0140. Okay, so the plain language doesn't reference credits, but they're referenced in the rule. And then what what's what, what's your argument with regards to the rule? Well, Your Honor, the rule, uh, the application of the rule uh, supports the department's argument. It'll, uh, and as I've said, this, this case is all about what overtime is. The rule allows employers to deduct premiums paid for overtime. The department's position is that those premiums are, are for the the hours worked after 48 hours. Hours 49, and, 50, 51, and so on. Right. right? And okay. uh, the language of, uh, the language in the provisions in uh, Rule 5200.0140 support that because 
it has both the overtime credit and the weekend holiday uh, credit. And if an employee, both of those need to be paid at one and a half times the regular rate. If an employer could designate any hours during the work week as overtime hours that need to be paid at 1.5 times the regular rate, there wouldn't be a need to have this uh, additional um, provision for holiday, weekend hours, et cetera. And speaking of holidays, you heard opposing counsel's response to my question about holiday pay. And I think he was basically saying the records just aren't accurate, or they they certainly weren't supported by a affidavit or testimony. What do the records show, in your view, uh, as to what the employer did with holiday overtime pay? Well, Your Honor, um, the records were provided to the department after the department did discovery. Um, the department, in addition to asking for records, asked for any documents supporting its contention that its payroll records didn't accurately reflect how it paid wages or couldn't accurately reflect uh, overtime wages paid. And uh, Baywood responded that there were no responsive documents. Uh, in our addendum, pages 75 through 77, we uh, include overtime um, or we include payroll stubs uh, that show Baywood employees being paid uh, holiday pay. And this holiday pay is based off of uh, the 1031 rate that the employees were paid, not $8. Um, for example... If, you, if the regular rate were $8, you'd expect that holiday pay would be $12 Correct, hour. correct, Your Honor. Well, well, it was one and a half times... 10, but it was, it was one and a half times this fictitious half, rate that Baywood claimed it never actually paid the employees. And uh, the department thinks the ALJ was correct that that is uh, uh, a, a dispositive issue uh, for summary, uh, uh, or a dispositive piece of evidence for summary, uh, summary disposition. How are the employees hurt by this uh, split pay plan? Split, split, pay, split pay plan, split day plan, uh, excuse me. They're hurt by uh, split day plans uh, because these employees are spending literally their entire week at these, at these homes, and they're not receiving any benefit for these long work weeks. Well, that, that's your impression about how you interpret the statute. Right. But they're being advertised, we're going to pay you $165 to $170 a day. That's what they're told when they're coming in, and that's what they compare to other employers. And so they're saying, well, if I can make, if I can work for, if I can make 165, 170 hours a day for this work, I'm going to do that. And whether it's under your plan, I mean, whether they're paying 1063 an hour as the basic rate or whether they're playing the split day plan, they're getting kind of what they were promised. So I, I'm not understanding, and they're being paid more than minimum wage. There's no question about that in this case. Well, I mean, at least as it was in 2013. And so uh, explain to me why the department is so invested in this if, if the purpose of statute, I think, is probably to protect employees, right? Yeah, Your Honor, the, the minimum wage uh, statute is intended to make sure that there's a floor to, uh, floor to wages, whereas the overtime uh, provisions provide protections for em employees who are required to work long hours. And there's a... There's a, difference, there's a different balance of power in the employer-employee relationship. Just because an employee is willing to work long hours without overtime pay doesn't mean that they're not entitled to that pay. Minnesota law entitles them to that pay and requires employers to, to make those payments. And their argument is, and I think the employer's argument is that they are, in fact, paying them that overtime pay. They're just doing it on a daily rate, and there's nothing in your room. I mean, you point to the rule, the, the word overtime pay in the rule to mean a very specific thing, but the department never defined what that overtime was for that premium exception, right? In, in your rules. There's, there's no it's, explicit definition for overtime in the rules of the statute. Right, no. so how do you come now, and this kind of gets the fundamental question I get, how do you come now and say, well, now we know what it means? 
and it doesn't mean this. Um, well, because pay for the 10th hour in the week isn't in excess of 48 hours. And as, as I've explained, these type of payment plans serve to basically prevent employees from receiving overtime. They depress the regular rate. They allow employers to kind of arbitrarily split up the day. But if they paid it for eight hours, if they paid $8 an hour for 48 hours and then paid the 12 hours, $12 an hour, these employees would be getting less money. But they also wouldn't, there's, there's a market rate. So there's a market rate for these employees and they wouldn't agree to work at that rate. That's my, kind of my point. Right. They're agreeing to a weekly market rate, right. which is how this is compared in this industry. So they're getting what the market rate is. Well, they're getting what the daily market rate is for employees who work three shifts, but the, the employees who are working five, six, seven shifts are entitled to more by virtue of these, um, by virtue of Minnesota's overtime law. Thank you, counsel. Your time has expired. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.